This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Davey Smith, and one of the studies that uh, we have going on at UCSD to, in our HIV research um, group is to try to cure HIV. And when I interviewed at UCSD as a uh, fellow, an infectious disease fellow, so I wanted to do infectious disease specialty, uh, this very distinguished professor who uh, actually discovered HIV drug resistance said, why do you want to do HIV research? Why do you want to come to UCSD and do your infectious disease fellowship? And I said, well, I think it would be great uh, every day to go, to go to work and try to cure HIV. And he, he said, ah, we're never going to cure HIV. <laughs> and uh, what's funny about that is, one, that it was a very long time ago, and two, is that uh, he now has multiple research programs um, doing HIV cure research and is very excited about continuing to do it. And this is one of those programs where uh, we are trying. Okay, so we're going to start off with some questions, and there's two questions that I want to pose, and this is also something that we'll ask on the little card, so I'll come back to these uh, slides at the end. Uh, Two questions, and I have one other one, but would you consider participating in a research study that would potentially help others, but not yourself, if you thought you had less than six months to live because of a terminal illness? Okay, so... Now, when you do your card rather than a yes or no, think about sort of what, what are your feelings about that, yes or no, and what does it mean to you, maybe what does it mean to your family. Sort of expand on the, the, the thoughts and the feelings that you have around that particular question. And then the second question is, what w- would you participate if it might decrease your lifespan further? And if so, how long would you be willing to give up to participate in a study? And then what physical discomforts would you ever consider enduring for participation? And then another question to think about is like, what are some big barriers for a research study that proposes to look at people at the end of their life um, for any type of research? So y'all think about that while I drone on for a while. So in terms of background, okay, so animals. We we talk a lot about animals, uh, models, and research. And this is a long history. 384 BC, Aristotle dissects animals to understand what the internal anatomy is. Uh, Quite a few centuries later, uh, Galen dissects monkeys and pigs and starts to understand the physiology and the circulatory system and the central nervous system. In the 1100s, there was a first experimental tracheotomy, and that's where they put a hole in the throat to get a breathing tube, and it's very similar to the tracheotomy that we do in uh, people today. And then uh, research progressed and went from animals into humans. And in 1937, there was this thing called elixir sulfinamide. And it was uh, good for not much, um, but it was sold a lot and perhaps can get rid of some uh, bacterial infections. But it turned out that it had a, a particular component, diethylene glycol in it, that caused kidney uh, damage and actually kidney failure. So a lot of people died. Um, in 1937 when this was marketed by uh, pharmacies and companies. And uh, so the U.S. government said, hey, maybe we should do something about human research that not just anybody can just throw something out there on the market. And it should be tested and it should be validated and do what it's supposed to do. All right? So that's how the FDA came aboard in 1937 um, to test um, compounds that people wanted to sell for specific illnesses. 
But this is the head of the NIH, uh, NIH cancer uh, group um, previously, Richard Klausner, and he said, we have cured cancer in mice for decades, um, and it simply didn't work in humans. So perhaps a lot of those animal studies that the FDA actually requires for many um, compounds and therapeutics uh, doesn't always work. In fact, many times does not work once it uh, gets to humans. So we can perhaps cure a particular cancer in a mouse, but when we actually use the same therapy in a human, it's not the same. And in my line of work, and many of this in the room, and hopefully you guys get to talk to each other, uh, there's many HIV researchers here, the animal models are not comparable uh, or very comparable to what happens in humans. So yes, there's a HIV version called SIV that we uh, can test in various primates, uh, macaques and monkeys and chimpanzees. <clears throat> and there's mouse models where we tweak them to make them look like human immune systems and we can do a little bit, but they're just not the whole uh, human to figure it out. And the reason why that's important is that HIV hides everywhere in the body. It goes to the brain, it goes to the gut, it goes to the spleen, it goes to the lymph nodes, it's running around the bloodstream, it's in the genital tract. And if we're gonna cure HIV, we need to know where it hides, how it lives, and is there a way to flush it out and to get rid of it throughout all of those places. And at the moment, we're sort of stuck. We can get it out of the blood pretty easily, right? It takes a little, uh, blood draw, phlebotomy, and we can get genital secretions, and we can get a little cerebral spinal fluid. But in someone who's otherwise healthy, we can't go after deep brain tissues. We can't go after the spleen. Uh, those are very deep tissues that um, otherwise people don't want to give up to me. Um, so we got to thinking about this. Where could we actually find out those tissues um, and get them in a way that makes it meaning meaningful for our research? So that's all the HIV research cure approaches. These in vitro models, the cell cultures, the animal models, the monkeys and the uh, uh, mice, clinical research uh, volunteers who are otherwise healthy are gonna live normal lifespan. Someone with HIV these days goes on therapy, their lifespan is just as good as anybody else as long as they can adhere to the medications and the medications are good for them. But all these have current limitations and many of that is about where we can get to understand all the deep places that HIV hides. So here's some open questions that uh, myself and my team have been pondering. What impacts the size? So some people have big HIV reservoirs, some people have little reservoirs, sometimes it's a lot in the brain, sometimes it's a little in the brain, sometimes it's a lot in the gut. Um, how do we get to those deeper tissues? And there's also subsets. Not every cell is the same in the spleen. Not every cell is the same in the gut or the blood. So teasing out those requires large amounts of tissues to run through our various um, technological platforms to sort it out. Which ones are infected? Which ones are not infected? Where along the continuum are they infected? And how long do they persist? And then we need to use very detailed models and quantitative methods to tease out the answers of how long does HIV live there? Is it alive in the gut versus is it alive in the brain? So our hypothesis was that people are naturally altruistic and that they would welcome the opportunity to participate in scientific research at the end of their life, even if it provided no benefit to themselves. It would provide benefit to the community and perhaps that would be part of providing benefit to them and maybe give their last uh, 
time on Earth to be a benefit and meaning. That was our hypothesis. So we set out to create this thing called a last gift cohort. And we looked at HIV-infected individuals who have a terminal illness, usually from a non-AIDS-related condition. It turns out that all of ours are non-AIDS-related condition. So people who have HIV, thank goodness the medicines work. Unfortunately, they get older and they die, just like everybody else. And um, how can we use or leverage what happens in the world, natural history, to answer some of the questions that we have? And a key component of this study is that um, when someone has HIV infections, we say, here's the medications. Do not stop taking it. This is really good to keep the virus under control. And if you stop taking it, the virus comes back, and then it can cause more problems. And the immune system deteriorates, and AIDS might happen, et cetera. So when you take this, when you have this medication, don't stop taking it. Um, but when people are terminally ill, many times they stop taking their medications. They're like, eh, I don't want to take any more pills today, so I'm, I'm done, right? And that gave us an opportunity to see the virus coming back. And it gave us a new, if we were able to characterize somebody before they stopped taking therapy, when they stopped taking therapy, and then after they died and all these tissues, we could get a really good idea of how the virus repopulated all these different reservoirs through the body. So we take detailed reports on social clinical factors, how, what other medicines are they taking, what is the terminal illness, is there any medication or chemotherapy for that. We look and see, uh, thank goodness, in San Diego, we've had a very uh, strong HIV research program for decades, ever since the epidemic started. So many participants actually have blood sitting in a freezer in my laboratory already. And then if they pass away, then we can also look at maybe what happened 10 years ago. Um, then we take limited blood collections while they're alive, and then after they die, we take their full body. So that was our idea. But we didn't know if anybody was going to do that. So we did some uh, foundation work at the very beginning. And the first part of it was we administered two surveys, and one was an HIV-negative survey, and one was an HIV-positive survey. So people who were HIV-negative, we had about 377 of those, and about 100 HIV people who were living with HIV. And we recruited the negative group on this thing called Amazon Turk, which is this sort of national representation across the United States that people can go in and take various surveys. It's actually a pretty good um, instrument and pretty well validated for many surveys. And then we asked very similar questions to people who were receiving care at our HIV clinic at UCSD called the Owen Clinic. And there's two questions, and they're going to be similar, right? Would you consider participating in a research study that would potentially help others but not yourself if you thought you had less than six months to live because of a terminal illness? And would you participate if it might decrease your lifespan further and for how long? And here are our results. So the blue is the HIV negative group and the green is the HIV positive group. In research participating, participation, over 90% of people in both groups said, yes, I would like to participate in a study like that. And the next one is like, would you give us your organs at, you, at the end of the participation? Would you do an auto, let us do an autopsy and collect some organs? Again, very high rates, 90 to 80% of people would be interested. So then we said, okay, would you be willing to give up part of your life? You only have six months. The doctors told you six months left to live. How much would you be willing to give up once you get a diagnosis like that? And about a third of people said, and both groups said, I'm not giving you any more days. I'm going to take all the days I can get, right? But 
A lot of people said, well, I'll give you less than four weeks, somewhere between one and four weeks. Um, up to 60% of people in the negative group said, okay, I'd give you a few weeks to let me participate in a study like that. And then the HIV positive group said, almost 40% of them said, I'll give you up to a month uh, just to be allowed to participate in a study like that. And that was kind of surprising to us. It was one of those crazy questions you kind of put on a survey to sort of figure out what people's real interest and desire and want to participate in a study like that is. And it was pretty high. So then, uh, so that was our first survey. We're like, okay, maybe we're on to something. Maybe there's a real desire or uh, need or want to have some sort of research opportunity at the end of their life. So we asked 12 people who were living with HIV and who had a terminal illness. I did this. And I did a semi-quantitative interview. And I talked to them and asked them a few questions about their willingness to participate in HIV research during this time when they were terminally ill. And just to be clear, all 12 expressed that they wanted to participate. And here's a few of the important quotes that I think um, were very meaningful to me and were expressed by more than one of these people. I feel like these last few weeks are wasted. I hate my cancer, but I hate HIV more. That was the most common <laughs> comment. Uh, I wish I could do something else to help. At least I could be doing something. I don't like the idea of excluding me from research just because I'm dying. And this was a very important point because the sort of uh, thought in the ethical field of research is this is a vulnerable population. We shouldn't be asking them to do research. There's no benefit to them, and they're vulnerable. But it was very interesting that this kept coming up, or at least the theme did. I would really like to participate. Why can't I participate? Is, what is the ethical concern for not allowing someone to participate in a research study? Okay, so now I'm going to tell you about our first participant, Last Gift 001, and he made it very clear that we're supposed to use his name. His name is Tony Bennett. He wants his name to be more famous than the other Tony Bennett that you just thought of <laughs> when I uh, said it. Um, and he's there with his partner and his friend, neighbor. Um, and uh, I'll tell a little story about him. He's been HIV, he was HIV infected until 19, since 1987. At least that's when his first test happened. And he was on suppressive therapy, so his HIV therapy was working great and had been for years. But he developed muscle weakness and little fasciculation, so it started to, uh, little electrical pulses occur in his muscles, and he thought something was wrong, and he started falling down a lot. They did a bunch of spinal taps, MRIs, it took a while, he had this funny syrinx in his spinal cord that started to open, and he had to get a shunt, and still people were having difficulty figuring out what was going on. But eventually, he was diagnosed with ALS in June of 2017. <laughs> and when he got that diagnosis, Despite taking HIV therapy for over 15 years, he's like, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to take it anymore. <clears throat> and he enrolled into the last gift cohort on June 7th. We did weekly checks of his virus that was in the blood. And then we did visits to where he was staying in hospice. And it gave us a really good time to connect with Tony, who I showed in the picture of his partner of 42 years. But then he developed fever and pneumonia on July 24th, and uh, he died on the 26th around 7 o'clock in the morning. And we did a rapid autopsy, which I'll talk about in a second. Just real quickly, uh, when we, so we enrolled him a few days after he stopped his therapy, but it remained undetectable up until the 13th of July. 
So then the virus started to come back, and uh, we're now in the process of looking at the virus that was coming back in the blood and then looking at how it went to all those other compartments that I talked about before. That's going to give us a lot of new information that we never had before about how the virus populates these very deep tissues. Um, in his cerebral spinal fluid, that's what CSF means, it always remained undetectable, which meant that the barrier between the blood and the brain seemed to remain intact in this short period of time that we were looking at it. So the rapid autopsy we did is based on one that uh, is modeled after a program at the Hopkins, at Johns Hopkins, and uh, what they do, this is for cancer research. And people who are terminally ill with cancer participate in clinical trials. They still, some of those trials are actually for therapies that are not related to their cancer or at least not uh, designed to fix the cancer they have. So everybody's on board. They know that this probably isn't going to benefit them, um, but they want to participate anyway. So that's sort of a model similar to what we're doing. Um, and they do a rapid autopsy. And the reason that it's so important to do a rapid autopsy is that the virus, for our purposes, the virus is very fragile. So if we don't get it frozen in time and preserved, then we don't really know what's going on. It can deteriorate pretty quickly. And as well, the other proteins that are floating in the cells and the brain and the blood, those things are important for us to know how the virus gets in and out. And if we wait too long, then it degrades. And that's been the problem with some of the autopsy studies before. So we developed uh, a rapid uh, autopsy program at UCSD to get everything collected within six hours of death. So that, that's pretty uh, hard. And I have to say that my team has been amazing at getting that together. In fact, I think they did a morgue trip on Tuesday just to make sure through the run through to get it together, which was pretty cool. I should have brought that picture. Um, I'm not sure this is going to play, but uh, this is uh, our promo video, so to speak. And the reason that I think it would be good to show here is that it actually is in Tony's words um, and his partner's words about how they felt about the study. Um, so I'll just let you read this. Um, is that they can find more information. The big things here is just to. Uh, understand that they understood issues, what the study was about. Why, why are we doing it? Uh, different antivirals can be made to attack it. So we asked him, what have we been doing? And why are we doing it? See the increase of the environment in my life. I'm trying to extract one white hill hides in the mind. Don't know where I'm going. Can't see the end, but I keep on looking back. It circles around. So we wanted to get perspective of other people who are involved in this study to figure out, you know, how do they feel about it? How do they think the participants are feeling about it? And this is Susanna, and she's over there. So if you want to talk to her today, I highly recommend it. The virus grows towards the end of life. 
is uh, Jeff Taylor. So we are very reliant on our community advisory board, which he actually leads, um, about getting feedback about you know ethics and participation and how does the participant feel about um, these things. His partner and his family. I, I get emotional just thinking about it. But the possibility is there, and I think this is going to really um, make huge strides in our understanding of reservoirs and where the virus hides and how we can uh, find ways to, uh, to uh, eradicate it, hopefully. He and I have been together for almost 43 years, and through that time, we've, been, we've had our ups and downs and everything, and um, we've dealt with HIV. And now the time has come that he is able to do something with the end of his life that should help the world. And I, I, so I think that these past few weeks have been very beneficial. I mean, we have probably talked more in the past than we had in years. I mean, serious conversation. Well, serious part of life in there. Uh, no one, one day, I'm gonna hit him on one thing. Not the answer, but at least a little piece of the puzzle to um, help him in the research of the This is a, a letter from our community advisory board and uh, went on to say thank you for participating in a study, you and your family, which I thought was very sweet. Um, if anybody wants the actual video, I'm happy to give them my slides. It's, uh, we're quite proud of it. I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, so at the autopsy, um, we do intracardiac serum. So we take some blood from the heart. We do the cerebral spinal fluid. We take the entire brain and spinal cord, and we sample as many places throughout the body as we can. And then we perform a cremation and give the uh, family the ashes. Um, this is a letter from Blake that we received after we did this uh, autopsy. Um, he said, thank you for being there. You all made such a difference in Tony's life. Your projects let him pass at ease, knowing that he had done something so worthwhile that with his life and being able to contribute to your studies, it meant so much to him. Thank you for all that you have done and the research that you are doing. Um, it's interesting. The other day I gave a talk at the ethics uh, committee for UCSD Hospital. Um, and one of the things that was that they brought up was that many of the uh, patients that they have in their aid and dying program, so this sort of physician-assisted um, suicide, um, called aid and dying, uh, oftentimes talk about how they don't have any meaning at the end of their life and that it's just time for them to go. And it was strongly expressed multiple times to me that this sort of study or these sort of opportunities might provide some of that meaning for some of these individuals, which I think still sort of uh, struck me and uh, I still haven't got my head fully wrapped around it, but it's something I'd like this group to think about and we can talk about it in a second. Um, we have more participants. So we have LGO2 who has uh, multiple brain lesions. Um, we don't know what they are because he, won't, he doesn't want to biopsy. They're going to be terminal anyway and uh, he doesn't want to go through that. Have, uh, person who has pancreatic cancer, and then someone who has lymphoma, and then we have another person who has ALS, 
who um, we can talk about. And then um, I'll end with uh, the people who really do all the work and who many of them are here today. And I hope that um, we get a chance that uh, we can discuss and talk and they can chime in. And if you have questions for somebody other than me and more eloquent, they are, they're here to back me up. So I'll stop there. So everybody's going to get, uh, we're going to get a three by five card, or I think you guys already have one. So these are the questions I'd like you all to think about and pick one to write down. Um, and I'll give you one extra one on here. But I really want you to not just answer yes or no. I'm, I'm happy if you do, because we, we'd like to know that. Um, but what are your feelings about this question? How, how does it strike you? What, oftentimes when I talk to people, they're like, wow, that, no one's ever asked me that before. That, that goes really deep. And I'd like to get a better idea of what that deepness is. And then what do you think are the big barriers? So outside yourself, think about what are the big barriers for doing a study like this? That's a question that some of you I'd like to, if you could help me answer that question. What do you think are some of the big barriers for this type of research? I have a couple of questions that came to mind. I wanted to, to start with those. And I want to get to something that you brought up, your very first hypothesis, which is your hypothesis was that people are altruistic. And in my experience from reading various social behavioral studies and hearing things, I think the hypothesis that would usually be demonstrated to be true is that people are self-interested and not that they're altruistic. And I think even in the human subjects research domain, that's usually what happens. And yet your research in your actual research, in this case, on that question seems to show the opposite, that people really were altruistic. Is there something different here? Or have the other studies not been done correctly? Are people altruistic? <laughs> that, that's a great question. Actually, I haven't thought of it exactly that same way. But actually, I'm not sure that our hypothesis was true. Because I actually think that we are giving something to someone. Our thought was, we're not giving anything to anybody at the end of their life. They're giving everything to us to participate. And what I found, what I think I found, at least in our qualitative interviews, was I would really like to participate because it means something to me. In which case then it's not really altruistic, right? So, yeah, so I think that's the answer to your question. Yeah, so, well, actually, I guess that gets into a, a deeper question. Is altruism really ever, um, you know, just for the other? Just for Maybe the other. altruism that's, is, that is always correct. at some level like that. And there's, a, there's a, an issue in um, surveys of people called social desirability. And so when you first showed us the survey results, that people said, well, of course I would do this. That may be very different than what they would actually do. But what you're seeing so far is that people tend to be more than willing to participate. Yeah, we've approached six people who are eligible and only one decided not to participate. Are you comfortable talking about why they or do you know what their concerns were? Uh, I, I, I talked to him, the, the one who didn't uh, participate. Uh, it was more about logistics, and uh, th there was a lot of pain issues at the time, and there was a lot of visits, and I, I think that was the main, the main issue. So it would have been additional burden. It would have been too much to add to that. So these programs, our focus is on ethics, and there's a lot of different formulations, as I'm sure you know, about how one thinks about what is an ethical decision. Um, Ultimately, you're trying to say, how should I act or what should I do? And in the, that process, you're looking at what the costs are and what the benefits are. And 
even though that sounds simple, like a simple calculation, it's actually a matter of first deciding what counts. So if this counts, that's important. If not, something else counts. So for this kind of a study, when we're saying what counts, there's so much that's unknown. And the first unknown that comes to my mind is going to somebody when they have six months or less to live. That's, you know, you never, you know, there's just so many ways, and I've personally seen this in a number of recent experiences where people were told, you have six months to live, and they lived for years, or you have six months to live, and they were dead in a week. So how does that come into your conversation? I mean, you're asking people to deal with a probabilistic issue as well when they decide to go off their treatment. Uh, and how, how we deal with it I, I, um, is we talk about it <laughs> and say that no one has the right answer. There's no crystal ball about when death will happen. We have some sort of maybe guideline because some a doctor or clinician has some experience with this to know um, maybe a probability, but in fact we don't know. And we talk about it openly and realize and understand that people probably will be in the study for quite a long time, and some people will be in a study for quite a sh- short period of time. Um, but also to your point, we are also trying to get at what people think about the probability issues, and Corinne Dubay is here, and she's developed a social survey to ask people about these sorts of feelings and questions, and specifically about how long do they think they'll live, and those sorts of questions. So we don't know, but we're still exploring those. So the good news is we have our questions sorted by number. The bad news is, of course, I didn't memorize the questions, so I hope you did. <laughs> so question number one was? <laughs> uh, I think the question number one was, would you participate in a study uh, if you thought you had six months left? To right. So um, I'm seeing a lot of yes, I would, yes, yes, yes. So I think a lot of people are saying yes, and we do have a lot of answers. So I'm just going to read a couple and, sure. and get your thoughts on them. So first one is, yes, but what sort of stipends or financial support are offered to terminally ill patients who are low income? Fair enough. Do these studies help pay financial or medical expenses? What kind of health care insurance is required of patients? So the financial issue. Yeah, so the financial issue is a very good one. Uh, question. Uh, I think we pay $10 per visit. Um, I'm looking for Sarah. Yep, she's nodding. Yes. Uh, $10 per visit. Not a lot. <laughs> got to answer a bunch of questions. You got to give me blood, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, we pay for cremation services at the end. And uh, medical insurance is not necessary. It's not rel- relative at all to uh, what we do. So we don't, we don't touch that at all. And medical services, we're not providing medical services at all except we're taking blood. Um. Okay, good. So um, actually, it's, it's probably worth commenting on the fact, I mean, for those of you who are thinking $10, that doesn't sound like very much. So human subjects research committees that review studies like this one are concerned that people might enter a study um, for the wrong reasons, that they might feel coerced to enter the study. So if you offered a large sum of money, people might choose to enter the study without thinking about risks. And in the study at this point, it may be hard to imagine, well, what are the risks uh, of this? But the point is that the committee will very rarely want to approve something that looks like people are going to enter simply for the money. So um, as 
bad as that might seem, because you've got some people, as this card suggested, who may not have many resources, this is not the solution to that resource situation. We, we uh, don't want them to enter the study based on what we're paying them in reimbursement. It's, we want to get that the providing for wanting the, the, what the other things that the study might provide, meaning, helping science, those sorts of things. Okay. I'm, I'm kind of reading some random ones because we won't be able to read all of them, but this one's, I would participate in a research study if I had less than six months to live because my grandfather suffered through cancer of the pancreas, and I would want to do anything I could to make sure other people didn't have to experience what he did or felt, which I guess gets back to your question about the difference between altruism and doing something in a sense that is for you. Yeah, that, that is a very interesting response. So when we, we started talking to people who were not living with HIV but were dying of something else, so terminally ill, and getting their thoughts and feelings about um, research at this particular point in their life, and this was the common theme. I would love to do something that helps somebody in my family or my friends along the way at this moment. Okay. Um, the next one... Um, at least first glance, seemed very eloquent So, and, and similar vein. I would participate in a research study that would help others. Helping others has given my life meaning, and it would be gratifying if it also gave my death more meaning. So. That was a very common theme. I don't know if that person's a social worker, but social workers who have heard about this story and this study have been very focused on that point, about the meaning at the end of life, and that's something very... Um, important to get back. So I'm going to move on to another card. And actually, um, I, want, I don't want you to think that because we're doing this that we aren't also inviting questions if you would like to ask questions at the microphone. So if you would, you can line up there. And also, um, um, I don't think you'll mind my mentioning this, but we have in the audience someone who is a participant in this study. And he has said, uh, if I'm, I think I'm quoting him accurately. We said he is an open book. You can ask anything you want. He would be happy to answer those questions. So if you would like to not just ask in hypothetical fashion, as we're doing now, but in a real fashion for somebody who's dealing with exactly that question, um, he'd be happy to, to, to chime in. So, um, so let's see. Um, okay, so over here, his, this is um, Michael Max Danielson. Michael Danielson. Yeah. Yeah, sec- the second others, so. question was... Yeah, let's move on to the... Let's see if anybody answers the second question. How much time are you willing? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so... Um, I believe I would participate for as long as I have left. If I had six months, I would give six months. I would give everything I have to help. Um, now, you, your cutoff or your criterion right now is six months. What if somebody came to you and said, I have six years left, and I'd like to participate. So, so the grant only lasts five years um, at the moment. Um, but we, we're hoping that we're building in, you know, this is the first grant, and hopefully we can get the cohort and infrastructure together to last longer. But there's no cutoff if someone lives longer than six months. It actually, for the study purposes, gives us more data, right? Because we're collecting blood on a pretty regular basis, and we can sort of see the natural uh, history, so to speak, along the way. So the next one is, is interesting because it gets back to this point I made earlier about lack of certainty about what you're actually going to face. Um, not only do you not know how long you really will have, but how much suffering you'll have and how well that can be handled. So the, this person noted, I would not participate if it shortened my life unless 
whatever terminal diagnosis I have is also causing me to suffer. So there's an equation here that has to do with not just time, but the quality of your life. That is a very interesting point that we're, that we're starting to ask that question. Well, Dr. Dubay is starting to ask that question. But one of the things that I showed in that survey is that people who had HIV infection were willing to give more of their time back than people who are HIV negative. And we were, we're going to dive in deeper. One of the hypotheses would be uh, perhaps that's a quality of life issue. And we're just wondering if that is actually true or not. So is it possible it's also very much a question of you don't know until you're there? So, you know, people, I mean, this is a common theme that um, young people especially say, um, you know, would you uh, want to live if you were in an auto accident and you lost use of both your legs? And they would, you know, that's the end of my life. I wouldn't want to live. When somebody's in that situation, they suddenly realize, you know, there still is life and they do want to live. Right? Yeah, do you think a, that might be a factor? It, it, I think it is a factor, especially for the survey we did. So that was actually one of the things that I wanted to get at with the qualitative survey for people who are actually in hospice. And what was interesting to me, the answers that I got back was, yeah, I'd want to live as long as I could keep helping your study. I mean, that wasn't exactly my question, but it was sort of a very interesting answer, right? Uh, yeah, I want to pr- keep participating to help. And that's what's judging how long I want to live, which was uh, an amazing answer. So this is um, you know, a powerful statement, too. This is... Um, I hope you don't mind, but they may want to use your quotes in some yeah. of their study work here. So um, uh, they, they said, would, would you participate if it would decrease your lifespan? And this person said, yes, I would balance the significance of the contribution to science to the amount of life lost. But this opportunity could transform a good death to a great death. Wow, that is powerful. Yeah. This one gets to the suffering question again. Yes, I would participate, but it would depend on how I would feel or am feeling. If my quality of life is much diminished, then I would not worry about shortening my life. Quality of life would be my deciding factor. So quality of life is an important issue for a lot of people. The one thing that didn't come up that I'd love some feedback and maybe the question session is uh, some people said that it would depend on what their family said. Um, because you're also not just taking away somebody's life time, but you're taking that time away with their family. Now, that's a, and yeah, if you just ask the question this way, that hasn't been factored in. I am presuming most people would want to have that discussion with their family to decide. So question number three was? <laughs> uh, physical discomforts that you'd be willing to endure. I think that okay. was Okay. Okay, first one. Anything that isn't permanent, biopsies, spinal taps, et cetera, are okay. This one has a a long list of things they would um, accept. Um, Anxiety, depression, shortness of breath. um, I think that word is disoriented. Dizziness, pain. Boy. Okay, so I, that sounds like a long list of possibilities. Um, I'd be able to give all the biopsies and drawings, but just as long as I'm not suffering or in chronic pain. This one is intersected with the quality of life question again. Blood draws, no problem. Um, I think that generally would be true, but even that could be time-consuming and difficult for some people. This one, needle sticks only. I wouldn't want to be in more physical pain. So... Seeing these questions suggests to me that 
and maybe you're already seeing this, that you're going to get a mix of, of things that you can do, and, and, and it does raise a question of what happens if the suffering gets too bad? What if, and have you had this happen already, that somebody says, can you put me back on my treatment for, for HIV? We haven't and, had that and, yet. And I'm not sure, would the time be, if it really was within six months, how severe could the HIV load become in terms of causing um, AIDS? Is that yep. it, it could happen it, within six months or maybe somebody lives in long a year, yes. Their immune system could be damaged enough by the HIV to cause problems. Um, other types of infections, those sorts of things. When we asked this question in the survey, and I didn't give the results, the most common... Uh, Almost everybody thought blood draws were fine and injections were fine, IV fluids were fine. Uh, they didn't like, they actually thought diarrhea was also okay. They didn't like being nauseated or have a headache. I don't actually like being nauseated either or a headache. Headache was the most common, yeah. Hello, my name is Michael. <laughs> oh, wrong meeting. Um, the answer to the first question is absolutely yes. Um, and it's for altruistic reasons, and, and your, your point about altruism is taken. Um, it's also about when you're, when you're terminal, you find that you're also the custodian of other people's feelings. And if my death has meaning, if, if I can provide information that's going to help other people, it will help my survivors to deal with their grief in knowing that I, I didn't die in vain or that my, my death was purposeful. Because we all look for purpose in our lives, and if we can have purpose in death, that's a legacy. I, I'm, I'm the one with HIV and ALS, so my strength is, is compromised. Yeah. Um, how much time? Yeah. Um, well, if you have six months to live and you gave up a, a, a month, that's a fairly large... You know, percentage. Um, but if you're, it's a quality of life issue as well. If you're unable to breathe, if you're having, because I've made it clear that I didn't, I personally don't want to be intubated. So if my quality of life is already compromised, um, giving up that last month of suffering, and I have to say I'm not in any pain, but that last month of discomfort for the greater gain of science. Is, is an easy choice to make. And the third one will be what are you willing to endure for the sake of... Reason? Yeah, you know, as you were going through the list, it's like, blood draws, sure. The, yeah, I'm in this for the money, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, blood draws, sure. Spinal tap is fine. Um, urine, you know, all of the regular things. When you started talking about the, the vomiting and diarrhea, I thought, do I really want to throw... Well... You know, I've done that on tequila when I was in China, <laughs> so I could do that momentarily. The diarrhea is no fun, but I guess anything that's temporary, I, you know, I wouldn't want my leg amputated, I don't think. But, um, but I think anything that, that's temporary would be agreeable. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Do you have any no, thanks. thanks very much. And, and just for the record, Michael was not paid for his attendance tonight, as far as I know, anyway. So there's no financial conflict of interest or coercion in terms of his answers. Thank you, Michael. And um, so 
we can take some questions at the microphone. So especially when we're talking about um, giving up some of these precious last few weeks of life or enduring some kind of painful procedure, um, and given that this is like a, a vulnerable population, um, and also sometimes uh, people, especially uh, with HIV, have um, neurode neurodegeneration or they have, maybe have um, some impaired ability to make decisions uh, at the end of life or may have other things going on in their life, might not have, you know, might have uh, lack of resources, might have other mental health things going on in their life. And what, what are the kind of, are there any special considerations you have for, uh, you know, if somebody has some kind of uh, mental health issue for how their ability to make these kinds of decisions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that is a great question. So just sort of to summarize would be, uh, do we consider can someone competently consent for a study? And that is a very important point for this study, and it's a very important point for every study. And for this study, uh, yeah, we have people need to be able to make their own decisions. Um, and the, they have to get informed consent from us and be able to uh, express the informed consent back and to understand all those issues um, uh, mentally and otherwise. I think it might be useful to elaborate a little bit. So um, it, informed consent could be done the way we all sign those end user license yeah. agreements where somebody just says, here's all the stuff that's going to go on, sign here. What do you do to make sure they did understand and they're competent to understand and able to make their own decision? Um, sure. So we actually go through the procedures and uh, we of the whole study, and uh, we ask uh, questions about what they just heard during the informed consent process. So there's a give and take. Uh, there's very, uh, um, very good uh, clinical uh, research people who go through that consent process, and they give feedback whether or not the person has given uh, good consent. They understand what the procedures are. Um, and for this study in particular, which is complicated. It's not as complicated as lots of other ones, but we're very clear that this is going to happen every so many weeks, and they tell us back this is going to happen every so many weeks. So um, that's how we do it. Yeah, and certainly the video you showed looks like the, you know, Tony Bennett actually understood, understood yeah. Yeah, what's going on and his partner. Um, yeah, great. Um, what can you say about the, the quality of the data in the sense that the whole reason you're doing this at all is because animal models are insufficient. So you're learning about real human beings. On the other hand, the real human beings with terminal cancer or some other disease that might be a complicating uh, uh, issue. Absolutely. So, so the question, as I take it, and I'll just summarize, and then you let me know if it's not correct. But we have these people who are going to be dying, let's say, of pancreatic cancer, and they're going to get chemotherapy for their pancreatic cancer before they got the terminal illness. How did that impact the HIV reservoir, since that's what we're looking at studying, or some other cancer? You know, those 12 individuals who had terminal illness who were HIV-infected, a lot of them had cancer. Some of them had heart disease. So how did that actually affect the reservoir in terms of expansion or contraction of their blood? So uh, one part, it's a limitation of the study. The second part is we know what happened. Um, with the interesting thing with the chemotherapy, it turns out that many of the chemotherapies are now being considered for curative uh, interventions for HIV. Now we can actually say, oh, did they actually have an impact into the reservoir of, let's say, the bone marrow or the 
liver or the spleen, because these are people who got that intervention for something else. And now we're going to actually look at all the virus through there. But they're not going to be the same as normal healthy individuals, and we understand that. It is interesting that we have two participants who have ALS. And honestly, their physiology and their, um, their physiology and their anatomy and their uh, HIV reservoirs are probably going to be almost exactly the same as someone who um, is HIV infected and otherwise healthy. So those individuals probably are going to tell us a whole lot about how the HIV hides in the reservoirs. So I'm not yep. going to let you off completely okay. on that question because I want to follow up because I think you know, the question is a, is a tough one. I mean, yep. when I think about the variability, even if you had the purity of only looking at people who only had HIV infection, I'm thinking particularly of the example of the, um, the counts that you found at three time points after stopping therapy. First it went up, then it went way up, and then it came back down. Even in one individual... It seems to me you're going to need hundreds of patients in any given disease category to make. It, it depends on the question. That's a, good, that's a good question, but it depends on the question. If, if I'm going to do an intervention, which is not what the study is, but let's say I do an intervention to figure out if I can actually cure HIV, then I'm probably going to need a lot to figure that out. But if I'm going to figure out what, let's say, what parts of the body are populated with the virus as soon as someone stops therapy, I'm probably not going to need that many because I can sequence the virus, see which ones pop up, and then see where they go. Do those same viruses that pop up when someone stops therapy, do I now find them in the brain, in the blood, in the spleen, et cetera? Which ones of those come up first? That I probably can answer with a few patients. So that, that's, that's one of the main objectives of our study, and I think even with a small number, we should be able to do that. Yeah. So I, just to make clear, though, that what, what you're assuming is that it will turn out that it, that is independent of the disease that someone yeah. is dying from. If it's not independent of that, then you won't be able to tell. We should be able, since we know what the disease is that somebody has, let's say pancreatic cancer, and then we see the same pattern in people who don't have pancreatic cancer versus they do have it with pancreatic cancer, then we know that there's a confounder there with a the pancreatic cancer, or at least can suggest it. Okay, good, thanks. Uh, Bill? So I appreciate the research ethics concern for vulnerable populations here, and we all have to adhere to that. But I worry that we are disadvantaging individuals who are perfectly capable of making these decisions by not making it more available. And we look at the other end of the spectrum. At 18 years of age, we're willing to let those individuals join the armed forces, law enforcement, the fire service, which also has an opportunity for shortening their lives. Um, well, at the other end, you have people who they were doing that, and this is their opportunity to one more ultra marathon or one more service to the community or one more overseas humanitarian mission. Uh, and so how do we figure the balance to let all those people where this is their, their last great life experience, which will provide fulfillment? And I would have to tell you that certainly I think for a lot of men, that purpose at the end would bring them back as opposed to just sitting on the front porch. And, I, and now I'm speaking very specifically for myself. Like Sitting on the front porch watching the sunsets is not how I want to go. I, I want to be doing something still engaged in life. And if it's wrestling HIV to the ground on my last gasp, that is a great way to go. So, so how do we make these opportunities available to those families and those individuals? 
So, so, so I, I loved your description there. And can, I'm going to point something out that, I, that I've learned this pattern, is that the people who actually tell me that we can't do this study, the first time they say, you, you can't do that study because these are vulnerable people, right? So they talk about it as somebody else. And then they did exactly what you did. Then they turn it to me. I, how do I feel about that? And that's what I do to them. I'm like, how would you feel at the end of your life? Would you want to participate in something? Well, I would totally want to do that, but you can't do it for them. So that sort of disconnect, trying to understand or to be able to discuss that real dis- disconnect of I need to protect people who are vulnerable, but I myself would like to have that opportunity if it came to me. That, that's the discourse that I'm hoping that we have here in the room and that can sort of help us bridge that gap. Did that make any sense? Thank you. Yeah, and I, I think um, what you're not doing is talking about depriving people of this um, opportunity to participate in the study. What you are doing is you're, though, protecting them from a decision that maybe isn't in their interest by making sure they understand what they're doing and choosing to do and making that choice. So, good. Yes, Green. Um, from an ethical standpoint, do you think more risk would be allowable at the end of life as compared to a, a, an individual who is otherwise healthy? And by that I'm thinking, would you give interventions that could potentially cure HIV, things like latency-reversing agents or antibodies or um, as, as the field moves towards combinations, you could, I mean, look at different combinations and see what works. Um, so, yeah, what's your yeah, thoughts so this on is that? Dr. Dubay. I did, this isn't a plant question, but it is something, <laughs> it, it is, it is something we've talk, that we've thought about. And actually, when I did the survey, one of the questions I left off, and I will just talk about it, is would you... B, would you you consider um, allowing yourself to be infected with malaria, HIV, hepatitis C, or strep throat at the end of your life at at this scenario? If it would help science, wouldn't benefit you, but let us learn something about um, these conditions. And the rationale was, we don't really have a good HIV vaccine. It takes thousands of participants to get it to know whether or not one or another doesn't work because of that human variability before, right? But if you had a group of people who were willing to be exposed, let's say get an HIV vaccine, expose them to HIV, see if that vaccine worked, it would only take a few people to actually get that answer versus thousands of people, okay? So I asked that survey, crazy question, right? I just said, I'm going to infect you with HIV. Which of these do you think was the most likely that people would be willing to accept? Turned out to be strep throat. I would not want to get strep throat. But it, it hurts. But people understood what strep throat is and probably even had it. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I lived through that. I, it wasn't so bad. I would be willing to do it, right? But a third of people would be willing to be infected with HIV at the end of their life. It was a crazy question. Was HIV the lowest no. response? Which, what was the least? What did malaria. they least? Uh, I think it was malaria. But they were all close to a third. Uh, it was, they, were not, they were not statistically different between them. So shall we subject the audience to a poll? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so HIV was first. How many of you, end of life, how much time left? Six months. Six months? How many of you would be willing to have yourself injected with or infected Exposed. with HIV? Exposed to HIV for all of HIV researchers over here have hands up. <laughs> okay, not a very high percentage are 
putting their hands up. Um, next on the list was malaria, or uh, I think hepatitis. Hepatitis C. C. Okay, hepatitis C. How are we doing here? No, I don't think we're getting a different answer. Uh, malaria and strep throat. Okay, so despite having heard this this explanation of why people might do that, you still, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think it's more of a familiarity yeah. issue, right? But because because of those, strep throat hurts the most um, for most people. Um, so it's very interesting. Yeah, and I, I'm just trying to think this through for myself because I had never thought of that question. But it seems to me that something that might go through my head was, would any of these things increase my susceptibility to other infections and other problems that would further exacerbate how I'm doing? And some would might be worse than others. I mean, the HIV, I'm, it sounds like... Ironically, that's the one that, in that period of time, may have the least chance of being a serious problem. That's correct. So, so you should have chosen HIV. You just didn't, know, <laughs> didn't get the Hepatitis right answer. Hepatitis C or HIV. Um, uh, but, but to, to Kareen's point is, and that's the reason we asked about the physical discomforts also in the survey. But there are many therapies that are getting ready to be used for HIV cure, and they are some of them are can be carry a lot of risk, and. Um, people who have HIV these days and who are otherwise healthy can take therapy and live normal lives. So putting them in those risks, there's, a, there's an ethical concern there, right? And perhaps, as Dr. Little says, this group of individuals in this end of life might be willing to accept a greater risk for the benefit of accepting science. So just it's interesting to think about. Thanks for joining us, and hopefully we will see you next month. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.